Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by. It is so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of valuable stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. Episode, I'm going to be sharing some thoughts about the importance of place. Where do you work from? Where would you like to work from? Where could you never ever work from? Do you need a mix? What's important to you? I'm really going to look into uh, the importance of those four walls, or indeed the lack of four walls, and why that is absolutely vital for finding that creative flow. Hello, and welcome back to the show. I hope you're well. What's been going on? It's been a uh, Busy time over here. I've been busy again with illustration. I think I mentioned this very briefly on the last episode, but I went through a really quiet spell and maybe the longest quiet spell I've had in over a decade and no real reason, at least not in my end. I think maybe a combination of God knows what. How can you even start to identify that? But things have picked up, so it's been busy here in the studio. So again, once again, apologies for the... Um, slightly lacking number of episodes but I do have good news on that front I have got a real hunger for this thing back at the moment Uh, and I've got a lot of really cool episodes with some wicked guests lined up which I'm going to be bringing to you very soon I can't really disclose any of them at this point but as ever we've got a lovely broad range of conversation and creative professionals and people detailing what their creativity looks like for you guys to hopefully enjoy and maybe learn something from so a quick thank you to the founding sponsor of the show, Illustration X. Brilliant illustration agency providing animation, GIFs, lettering, murals, live workshops, editorial design, advertising. The list goes on. These guys represent a broad range of artists globally. They've got offices all over the place in China, in France, in Australia, in Brazil. They are truly a global agency and they're very nice people, very professional and they've been very supportive of a man with no training in broadcasting or anything like that. <laughs> and that says a lot about the people who run the agency because Harry, the MD, very kindly got this show off the ground with me. It was his suggestion in the first place. And um, I could go on forever speaking fondly about these guys, but they are a great agency. Go and check them out over at illustrationx.com. So I hope you're all doing well. Um Like I mentioned at the start of this show, I'm going to get into workplaces and studios. But but a little bit more than that, I'm going to look at the themes and the things that are important from a workspace. Um, I'm going to be sharing some of my own stories and examples for this. But I'm going to be looking at this in a way that will hopefully apply to all of you guys. And I'm very keen to get your thoughts on this, so do hit me up. I've just got active again on the podcast Twitter, which is at bentalonpod. Um... You can hit me up there or you can hit me at Ben Talon. I check on both pretty regularly now, so it doesn't really matter whatever's easiest for you or whichever one pops up first. Let us know your thoughts because I'm keen to know where you work from. Um, Do you like it? Are you happy? What would you change? Do you have a dream workplace? Are you in that dream workplace? Or are you in something that you completely loathe at the moment? I'm really interested in this topic and I've been writing about it in depth in my upcoming second non-fiction book, The Creative Condition exactly the same title as this show and it's something I've been increasingly fascinated in Um, 
I have. So for any okay, let's go back a little bit. So for anyone who read Champagne and Wax Crayons, which is my debut book, detailing what it's like in brutally honest fashion to build a career from creativity, or led by creativity, I should say. It's a what's and all account of doing that. And it's on offer, by the way, at the moment for $7.99 down from $12.99. So do get your mitts on that if you haven't already. Um, but for anyone who read that, you'll remember the bits where I was losing my mind working from home a little bit in a flat in Manchester. And I would be working anything up to, God knows, like 15, 16 hours a day some days because it was an early stage in my career. And I was just one guy. I didn't have a partner. I didn't have a family at that point. So there were no real limitations to my time. And I used to go a bit mad plowing those hours in to get things off the ground. And it drove me a little bit crazy. And it reached a point where I would go around all the local co-ops and Tesco's and Asda's and whatever else. And I used to learn, you know, when they marked down the sandwiches. And I used to use a shave as a way to break up the day, a shower would be a treat. And that's the kind of level of living in your head that I find a lot of people are at risk at working from home. Now, like anything else, that's completely subjective and individual because I also know people who wouldn't have it any other way and they love working from home and they find that they're far more productive than going into the office. So it's horses for courses, but I just find it a really interesting topic. And the reason I wanted to talk about this now is... I've been saving up and planning now for nearly four years on getting a bit of a studio set up in the garden and it's finally happened. So I moved to Salisbury in October and I managed to meet a guy down here who runs Neil's workshops and it's a bit of a, you know, there's a bit of a jack of all trades. They work on all kinds of domestic projects and during a conversation which happened when Neil was putting some shelves up for me, it turns out that he could, he could do what I had in my mind so he could build this kind of garden call it a glorified shed call it a studio call it an office it's a wooden it's a wooden structure it's about three meters by two meters and it's a dedicated workspace and I couldn't be more excited and desperate to get in there because I'm going just a little bit crazy um, in the spare room at the moment and I, again, I, I know that, you know, the spare room is a luxury. I know that some people would kill for it. I know that some people absolutely love it. Me personally, I really struggle. I am not one for working from home. It's not my choice to do that. But I have been doing that throughout lockdown. I've done it out of financial necessity in the past, on and off. It tends to ebb and flow. You know, when things are good, I'll hire an external workspace because I know the value of doing that for me personally. Um, but I wanted to just look back at some various kind of workplaces, not just in design, but way beyond that. So I remember looking at Anthony Burrell's studio, not in person, but he did a talk at Manchester Design Festival going back a few years. And I remember feeling insanely envious because he had this beautiful custom built space in his garden, about five times as big as the one that I've just had commissioned. But you've got to start somewhere. <laughs> and um, and it just looked amazing. It looked like it had, you know, it was the, it looked like the perfect setup for Anthony. Now, as I, you know, as we've been through in the past, as we know, it, that's always something of an illusion because only the person knows whether that is the dream. You know, that's the, what's the, what's the expression or what's the saying, the famous quote, it's um, comparison is the thief of joy. So we don't know that. Maybe Anthony's not happy in that space. Maybe it's not the dream for him. And maybe it couldn't be the dream for us either. So, 
you've got to approach this stuff with a degree of caution, much like, you know, when we're looking at other artists' work. But I loved seeing that space. And, I, you know, it got me thinking about whether it would be that for me. Would it be the personal Eden? Or would it be a bit of a, a tease and it wasn't be the case when I got in there? I don't know. But I think it's a it's a really pertinent time for this. And I've been writing about it in the, in the Creative Condition book in depth, looking at place and surroundings for everything from the way you arrange a room right through to which room you're in. Or are you a person who needs to be on location? Are you a person who needs to travel to stay energized? I don't know. Only you guys can answer that question. Or maybe you can't. Maybe it's something you haven't considered, and that's kind of the reason why I wanted to do this show, because, oh, God, I do know a lot of people who've really fallen into that trap that I've fallen into myself in the past of going a bit mad, of working from home, or working in a workspace or an office that's just not right for them. And, you know, we're going to get into that. I know that there's not always a great deal of choice in the matter, so that's another aspect to this. But I am going to kind of work through it and, and just air some thoughts and I'm very keen for your input on this one much like I am for every episode so my current lifestyle I'm a, I'm a father of two twins they're two and a third year old and they are wonderful at the minute they're truly magic but they are really noisy and I mean it's full chaos in the house there's stuff being launched around it's screaming one minute it's laughing the next and no matter whether they're in a good or a bad news it's mental downstairs and I've been in a, a room a little room just above them and the room is very temporary because we've not moved into the house too long ago. And the room never really got set up. So what I've got is a kind of wooden tray with all my ink pens and brushes and pens. But then there's also random pencil cases around that's got a few pens in because maybe I took them on a live job months ago, years ago. There's random bags that I never fully unpacked from live jobs. There's my backpack with things that I've taken down to the local cafe to work and forgot to get out. And it just hasn't ever really got beyond that state of disrepair. And it just isn't working. I'm, I'm quite demotivated on the artwork front. Don't get me wrong, when I've got a deadline, I'm, I'm very good under pressure. It's fine. That's when I'm at my best. But when I'm not under pressure and it's down to me to motivate myself and structure my own day or week or month, I'm a shambles at the minute in this current setup. Because what I find, and this goes back to my episode with Lauren Kelly about behaviour design, it's bad behaviour design for me because if I have to go and scratch around and look for a certain pen or every time I need a new pad if I've forgotten where it is, I make decisions where there's the freedom to make these decisions based on laziness or convenience. So I think, well, do you know do you know what? I'll go and do some editing on my laptop or I'll go and write a story in a cafe because I've not got a deadline. And it's bad because normally, I'd, you know, if I needed to do some not new personal illustration work, that's what I should be doing. But my creativity is stifled because I'm not in the right surroundings. So do you, do you understand where I'm coming from? It means that I'm self-sabotaging unnecessarily. And I really hope that when, I, when I'm when i able to go into this new studio, so I'm currently waiting on the third coat of paint to dry. I've got some flooring going down this week. And then that's it. Then I can move in. Then I can start getting the bits of furniture in place and setting it up in hopefully an optimal way that will design that behaviour to counter my, my worst self. You know, it's the devil and the, the, the angel on the shoulder thing where I know that between, for example, drawing and then going to scan, I can see 45 minutes go up the wall because I'll go and make two brews and I'll go and pet the dog and I'll go and play with the kids. And it's like, come on, you need to design that space to counter that, those tendencies, you know? You've got to admit those weaknesses and then recognise those kind of personality 
I'm reluctant to use the word flaw, but those tripwires almost, the little things that can kind of get in our way and, and, you know, by the end of the day can potentially waste up to a couple of hours or mean that we're not working in the right headspace. So that's why I wanted to go through all this stuff today. Um, so what this new workspace is going to do for me is give me the freedom to make noise. It's going to give me the freedom to make mess. I'm not going to be worrying about, you know, pissing my wife Laura off by getting spray paint on the wall or choking my kids with the fumes. You know, it's like I can make happy mistakes again. I can do spontaneous drawings because I'm going to have a proper drawing desk. It doesn't have to be packed away at the end of the day or, you know, it's not a part of the house. So I can walk in there. I can be dynamic. I can stand up if I need to. I've got loads of options and choice. I'm going to have the space to stay organised. So when it comes to planning my books and my stories, I'm going to have wall space. I'm going to have boards. I'm going to be able to see what I need to do and counter the fact that I am not a naturally organised person. Um, it means I can record podcasts in peace. I can have client meetings and phone calls on Zoom and whatever. I can, you know, I can catch-ups with local creatives you know I've met quite a few writers and illustrators and artists and musicians around these parts and it'd just be nice to you know get the other freelancers around for a coffee and have a professional space where the kids aren't going to be running up them or the dog jumping at their feet um but I really am struggling at the minute in the spare room and it, so it feels like a revelation to have this new workspace and it hasn't been cheap but it's a real investment in moving forward so you know I think I just wanted to lay down a few examples that crossed my mind when I've been thinking about this topic. Examples of the good, the bad and the bizarre when it comes to the effects of place on, on our creativity at large. You know, I don't think this is just about designers and studios. I don't, I don't think much of what I talk about on this podcast or much of what I write is just about designers and studios. No, don't get me wrong. The Creative Condition book, Champagne and Wax Crayons, they are heavily aimed at the creative professional industry and they are of great benefit to those people and I draw a lot of examples from there because in those industries are people who are leading with creativity but it's not about being artistic it is about creativity one of humanity's defining pillars so I wanted to make that distinction because that's what this book is going to do it's breaking down the huge misconception that creativity is about being artistic picking up a guitar or a pen and being all bohemian it's not about that they're two very different things. And I've seen creativity in people on bricklaying sites far more inspiring than I have from artists, loads of occasions, and all other kinds of professions where you wouldn't consider it creative. Um, and therefore, I wanted to just dig a bit deeper and look at some other jobs that I've done in the past and why those environments had vital clues about how I can best structure my environment to benefit my creative flow at any given time. So there's talk about, you know, I want to talk about supermarkets, factories, offices, idiots, <laughs> newsagents, because these all provide um, little threads about what works for us as individuals at certain times, but sometimes not other times. And, you know, it's like what doesn't work at all in accordance to our personalities. There's permanent things here and then there's flux situations. It changes. Optimum surroundings come and go, you know. So... You know, doing this podcast over the years, I've seen inside so many people's and companies' workplaces. And sometimes I get real envy about, you know, what I consider to be like a really nice, desirable workplace. And sometimes I leave wondering how they even cope in that because it's perfect for them but just could never work for me. And I've seen people frustrated, limited, enabled, thriving, 
like collapsing, falling apart and completely in their element. While I've been doing this show and while I've been catching up with creative professionals, you know, I've, I've had the pleasure of going to loads of people's houses um, and workplaces, design agencies, little tiny hired spaces in, in little crappy buildings that really shouldn't work but just do for that person. So, you know, I've seen surprisingly positive creative surges in the most unlikely scenarios and I've just found that ideal settings sometimes fall short of the Eden that we sometimes expect them to be. So I'm under no illusion that the studio out in the garden will sometimes need to be escaped for me. You know, it's, it's not going to be somewhere that I just bunker up and hide away from the world, never to be seen again, and then emerge in 20 years in my underpants with a beard, you know, it's with a massive beard, I should say. I've got a beard as we speak, but <laughs> that's beside the point. Um, I know that I need the variation. I've come to realise that, and um, you know, I've learned that over the years from the different workspaces that I've been in. I need to change my scene. I need to break my day and my week up so that when I start to get lethargic or tired or irritated, I need to be able to go, bang, what do I need? Where do I need to be now? Just to keep that energy going. Because especially as a parent of two young kids, I'm exhausted all the time. So now more than ever, I need variation in my surroundings to keep myself fresh. Because come nine o'clock at night, I'm dribbling on the couch, you know, with my eyes rolling in my head. And then I'm up again at 10 to 5 or whatever daft o'clock watching kids shows and making milk and breakfast. And it's like, wow, that's not sustainable. Um, so there you go. You know, I'm sure there'll be times when that studio is not right. But I really hope that for the bulk and for the, all the time I need to be making artwork where I need a station, that it is going to be right. So we'll see. Like I said, I really want to hear from you guys on this. What works for you? What has worked? What doesn't work? What could never work for you and why? Give us your thoughts. But at Ben Talon, at Ben Talon Pod, whichever one you prefer. Are these considered or tried answers? that you're giving, that you're thinking about now, that you're maybe responding to in thought, or are there narratives that you've constructed based on something that you've only imagined? Because I've certainly found out that what I thought was going to be perfect just didn't work. So I think it's always worth trying a new setting to see how you get on. You know, throw yourself out of your comfort zone. Try something that you might think you're going to hate because you might be surprised or it might be like you thought it was, but there may be just some little benefit or observation that you make that you know gives you yet another clue that you can go back to your workspace with and, and make a change that's just going to help in a, in a way bigger way for your creativity. Um, I remember Lucinda Rogers, I don't know if you guys listened to that episode, but when I interviewed Lucinda, who does a lot of on-location, live, really dynamic illustration, reportage stuff, she was um, a very quiet-mannered, gentle person um she was a joy to interview but i always find it trickier interviewing the quieter people because at least with the louder people and the more brash it's like it makes my job a bit easier as an interviewer whereas lucinda was very considered and then you know had to kind of really focus and pay attention and what i found surprising from that was lucinda's absolute lack of fear to just get on location and sit down in the busiest environments where there were so many variables and just thrive and her work just comes alive and I don't believe that it could ever be the way it is if you tried to replicate that in a studio. I remember Malika Favre, she very kindly invited me around her apartment to record the podcast and she worked from there and she said she couldn't ever do it another way. Like school, school springs to mind, so how was school for you? Um, I spent as much time at school getting out of things as I did doing work. Um, 
the reasons being, I just found it such a stultifying environment. I don't know how much things have changed because it's been a while since I spent any regular time in schools. But the rigidity of those environments and those classrooms laid out the way they were and the blackboard slash whiteboard teachings and the kind of here's a textbook teaching method or dictation, it put me asleep. And that was just me individually, but I know I don't just speak for myself. And I would go to extreme measures to, to swerve, you know, doing the homework or spending any more time than I absolutely had to. I remember in particular feigning passing out on the stairs after break to get out of maths because I hadn't done my work. And I, if I may say so myself, it was quite the acting performance. I remember the PE teacher, Mrs. Greenwood, walking up these steps at the time. And I looked down, timed it. No one else is around in this corridor. Everyone else has gone to class. And I just rolled down this like set of four stairs and laid there groaning. <laughs> Cue me sitting in reception with a, a cold flannel on my head. And, you know, miraculously by the end of that session, I was kind of all right for PE that afternoon. And despite that being the behaviour of a little shit at school, that's what school did to me. That's what that rigid environment did. And it killed any curiosity that I would have otherwise had in subjects like science or maths or um, history or geography. All these things that I'm really interested in now that I, you know, I listen to podcasts on and I read books about. But it killed it because it was the wrong surroundings for me. It just didn't work, you know? There was no collaboration, there was no speaking, there was no fun, there was no dynamic teaching, at least there wasn't in my school, I just didn't find it. Don't get me wrong, I'm not having to go at the teachers, they were good teachers, but the way things were done at that school just didn't work for me. And I think that's could be said about you know the education system by and large to this day. And then to take that another step further, I ended up shoplifting from Woolworths and getting banned from all Woolworths in the UK for stealing an Ian Wright football Corinthian figure. I don't know if you remember them, if you're of a certain age, little football models with big heads. Um, and I did that, I believe, because even though it was really out of character, it was a one-off incident, but I got in serious bother for it and it was a horrible experience. And I think I did that because all of my passions took place outside of school. My drawing, my love of sport, my you know my relationships with friends um and i think the absolute lack of purpose or direction in school took me very briefly down a wrong path and i was very mischievous which i think is to this day something inherent in my personality but when you are without direction without purpose you tend to overcompensate by using that in a greater degree perhaps in a wrong way and that's what i did so if you've read champagne and wax crayons you'll know that i used to abuse the teachers in my drawings and i got in serious trouble for that which actually turned out by very fortunate chance to be a revelation of an experience because the teacher who found one of those drawings of him, which was really offensive, he took me to one side and he asked me why I wasn't using that for something better. And he told me that instead of a punishment, if I was prepared to design him a poster for a talk on dyslexia that he was giving later that week, um, that I would be off the hook. And that was his very clever way of just going, come on, you know, get your act together, use your skills for better here. So it was pointing in the right direction, but I don't believe that the school in general did that. Um, and I just had no real way of expressing myself. So I think that's what happened. I was wandering in the dark a little bit. And it's always been creativity that's kept me out of trouble or just kept me feeling positive and kept my mental health in check ever since. So I guess the lesson there was that uniform spaces or uninspired regimented areas 
don't work for me. Now, maybe they work for others, like I say, I'm not, I'm not going to repeat that every time because that's the case for everything that I'm going to talk about here. But even the art classes in school had very little conversation, very little collaboration, not much in the way of any kind of thought-provoking ideas or um, space for the individual to step up and express themselves. So I was half asleep in those rooms and, you know, only alive in the corridors or the school grounds when it came to school. Um, I had a paper round when I was at school for about two years before I started working in supermarkets. And I loved that. It was very tiring getting up in the morning and I got paid a pound a day, which was dismal. I mean, a pound was probably worth a little bit more back then, but it was still really crap. And But I loved it because I was getting up, I was out in the fresh air and the rain first thing, and it gave me an outdoor energy and some belonging. You know, I had a job, I had a bit of a role going on there. I was a part of the community by doing that. And I got to talk to loads of people in the old people's flats where I delivered newspapers that I wouldn't have otherwise chose to speak to. And I would later find the same thing in shared studios and certain workplaces down the road. But then I got to school and it really didn't have what that paper round had. So I would very quickly just drop all that energy that I'd built up in the morning. Um, I think that's a shame. And you know, ironically enough, as a big sports fan and as a keen drawer, PE and... I mean, sport was pretty cool. I enjoyed the kind of the hustle and bustle of it, but it was only a modicum of what that would come to be post-school. But science, I got a double F in science. And I'll tell you why, because they split the class only two ways. So we had five sets of about 30 in our year group of about 150. That's the size of school we were. Which meant that usually there were about 30 to a class, between 25 to 30 in any of our classes. So five sets, A through E. Now in science, they just split it two ways. So you had like two batches of, I don't know, 60 or something. I can't remember how it worked. But it was a big class and it was madness. And I got lumped in the bottom set out of the two, which was full of kids who felt the same way as me. And as a result of being in a science lab, would set fire. To, I'm not saying I did any of this. <laughs> They would set fire to the display walls and they would um, light magnesium and, you know, piss around with steel wool and get the Bunsen burners going. And it was all kinds of chaos. I remember the classroom getting flooded. I remember one teacher having a near nervous breakdown because of the sheer unpredictability and chaos of that class, which was, of course, very wrong. I felt sorry for that teacher even back then at that age. It was completely wrong. However, if someone had had the vision to work with that classroom and find a better way of using that environment instead of just rigid rows of six or seven or whatever it was, where kids had to just sit still and do as they were told. I can't help but feel there was such a potential for something better in that environment, you know? Um, but there we go, that's the irony. The subject I did the worst in was actually the most dynamic because of the equipment and everything and the practicality and, the, you know, we, we weren't just writing in textbooks in that lesson, so... Anyway, just a thought. Um, but what I found in school, I found mm, the negative stuff I found mirrored in many workplaces. So I worked at a place, ITV Pensions, where I was just filing. It was dead people's records into spreadsheets. Quite dark stuff when you think about it. But it was um, it was a office of three people and it was warm. And I was sat all day putting data in a spreadsheet. And I used to, I actually fell asleep a couple of times, sat up. I don't know whether anyone noticed it was that kind of place, but um, it was terrible. The days dragged. I found it bland. Oh, I mean, it, just, it, it really didn't work. 
and the repetition in the mundane of it and his small warm again there you go there's another there's another factor temperature <laughs> you know what i mean you don't no one really thinks about that when you're thinking about a dream a dream studio but all the workplaces that i've had over the years have had some kind of extreme temperature or you know too hot in summer and freezing cold in winter and all of this stuff has an effect on creativity which we don't always think about um but anything where i've been stuck at a desk eight hours a day i've struggled with even if i'm just sat drawing all day i'm half asleep by two o'clock in the afternoon i need to get up and go do some research or you know meet another creative and have a coffee i have to kind of vary that up um, don't get me wrong I certainly took character and behaviour observations from all of these roles no matter how boring or bad the job was I, that meant I got details for my writing my storytelling whether it was comics graphic novels editorial commissions I've always found ways to draw on these experiences so it's never bad it was never always bad and they were always stepping stones to you know and of course you're earning a living which is absolutely vital in this capitalist society so you know I just don't do well with sitting still in a mechanical environment like that it's as simple as that um, each new job of that kind that I did get only strengthened my resolve to make something for myself um, much like art college you know became an absolute haven for me after the pains of school like school really only strengthened my desire to, to find a way of building a career that I didn't feel like that in you know I just couldn't go through that I couldn't go through my days feeling like that it just it would have broken my spirit simple as that for some people they're fine with it i know people that love it and they like the regularity my dad is a great example so between my first and second years um at university i worked in my hometown where my dad worked at a household goods factory called damat and there were some great people working in them jobs we had a lot of laughs but it was ticket in boxes it was unloading arctic lorries and again it was you knew what you were doing each day at that time and i didn't like that my dad loved it he liked the reliability he liked the regularity he had a lot of good mates there and he earned a wage to support his family so for him he was very appreciative of that he came from a generation when work wasn't so plentiful um and he loved that role he did it for a lot of years before moving on to something that he liked even better but for me while i was very grateful of him getting me the job and i earned some you know crucial money that summer for my second year at university that job turned out to be the biggest turning point in my education my creative education because i realized that i'd put all my eggs in one basket and therefore the consequences of not making things happen meant that the fall was going to be even further it wasn't like i could just go and get a design in a you know a job in a design agency i wasn't trained for that i had gone down the viscom route the visual communication route exclusively if i wasn't going to be an illustrator at that point i didn't really have an alternative it would have taken me a long time to kind of transfer my skills in such a way that i could do anything else and therefore that job put the fear into me i thought this is you if you don't make this work this is you and i used that as inspiration again i'm not belittling that job i'm not saying it's a crap job per se there's no such thing as just a simply a crap job but it was a crap job for me because i've got and like i said before i got a brain that needs variation needs inspiration i need energy i need ideas i need something funny to work with i need to feel like i am creating something with meaning it's as simple as that and i just didn't feel like that job provided me with it so um that said i used to take stickers and little graphics from boxes and i started to make these little collages and, and draw over the top of them so it was a really important um incidental 
way for me to develop my style, which really came to the fore in my second year at university. Uh, so they are with value, you know, when you're in these workspaces that are not particularly suited to you. Um, but I'll tell you what, I'll never forget the feeling of walking into art college in Keighley College on my first day. So I went for work experience in Keighley College Art Department and it was this big old industrial warehouse with white walls and partition workspaces. But the day, the first day walking in there and seeing everyone in their own clothes, drinking coffees and going for cigarettes and going for a piss when they wanted to without having to put their hands up. With like-minded people who also loved creativity and being artistic was one of the best feelings I've ever had. It was incredible. Um, there was space to roam. You could dress exactly how you wanted. You could decorate your workspace any way you saw fit. There was access to all different departments, so you could go up and see the people doing different courses, the product design, the web design people, the graphic, well, I was on the graphic design, but um, all the other people, ceramics, I remember, printmaking. It was so bare, so simple and minimal and so industrial that it was just so alive. And the noise of people making and coming up with ideas and crits and meetings talking about design solutions off the back of school was a game changer for me. And that feeling is something that I have looked for in every workspace I've been in since. Sometimes I found it, sometimes I didn't. Um, how about you? How, like, how do you feel? Do you need energy, quiet, solitude, bodies around you? I talk to people and everyone's different. I know some people who can't stand the idea of shared space. Tim Easley, who was on the show, an illustrator, um, go check out Tim's work if you're not already aware of him. Tim said he can imagine nothing worse than, you know, working in environments with like the public or shared spaces because he's a character who needs that quiet and focus. And that's what I love is that everyone's different about that. Um, how can you create the right mix? What I'm seeing now in this new studio that I've got in the garden is that I'm going to have the control um, to make sure I've got the balance of all of the, all of the above. So if I'm in there on my own too long, it's great because I can walk out, I can walk through the house, I can go 15 minutes into town and go to any number of cafes, whether it's other creatives or co-working spaces or maybe go to an event in the evening, like an open mic night or uh, some reading or whatever it is, there's things going on. So I think you have to think about when you need the, these things. I think to say that from a workspace... I only need A, B and C is almost a little counterproductive because surely for all of us, we need some degree of variation. Sometimes we'll need a change of scene, right? And whether that takes place in that workspace or whether you have to go and get that externally um, is another conversation, which we'll get to later. But I think that to a degree in that base, you, you really need, you know, you need some kind of consistency, uh, optimal consistency. Um, but when I need the noise, I go and sit in cafes, I work in parks sometimes. I often get on the train, so since I moved to Salisbury, Bristol, London and Bath are only a stone, set stone's throw. They're all within an hour and a half on the train. So what I find is that's three hours really good focused work time on the train. And then I can walk around and get inspired and go to bookshops or sit and work in the park, which is what I've done in Bath a few times now. 
Um, so, you know, you, I think you have to stay fluid because these things are rarely linear. Um, the energy that I found at art college wasn't just about a tailored setting. While, yes, art college made me feel alive, um, I also felt that way when I was tidying shelves in supermarkets. I worked in a budget Scandinavian supermarket called Netto for two sixty-three an hour when I was 16. Um, and Blockbuster Video, and they paid me a bit more and it was an awesome job. But that job, Blockbuster, also made me feel that way. And so did being a recycling officer at Preston City Council. So these were jobs that I either did when I was studying, you know, as part-time income or full-time job while I was getting ready to go freelance. And Blockbuster was kind of like the energy between the staff and the customers. It was a really buzzing hive of activity, especially on a Saturday when you had to put all the videos back on the shelves and sort people's return films out and then serve customers and work out meal de um, the deals with the popcorn and all that stuff. It sounds ridiculous, but... I loved that buzz and, you know, it passed the time really quick. I made friends there with customers and staff alike. It was cool because you were talking about films, there were film trailers on, there was music playing. And it wasn't a job that I would have ever looked for that in, but actually there are parallel values across all different kinds of employment. So Preston City Council was a really varied job as a recycling officer, which meant that I was in an office with enforcers you know people had to go and deal with fly tipping and then educational officers who went out doing educational events at schools and around flats about recycling and getting people to be more proactive and things like that and then you had to come up with campaigns to get people to recycle so again variation busy environment um energy sense of purpose we all had autonomy in our roles and we weren't too heavily policed and it just, it meant that the, the environment in that place, while it was a bit of a banal office, wasn't just about the, the settings and the, and the physical stuff. It was about what went on in those four walls. So again, I think that's a different distinction to make is that, yeah, it can be a plain space. It can be a maybe a boring corporate office. But if what's going on in that corporate office is not boring and the people are getting on and there's a real sense of, uh, of magic, then it transforms it, doesn't it? Surely. So you can flip all this stuff on its head as well, which is another train of thought. Um, I found that in each of those roles, I had room for my sense of humour to play out. So even in the supermarket, you had all kind of madded customers coming in and there were some funny people in there and some um, really interesting characters and they'd just stop and talk to you and then you'd get put working with people who maybe you wouldn't choose to hang out with. And it brought out these kind of, this chemistry and this sense of humour that otherwise might not have flourished. And there was just something about being on the shop floor and having to kind of tidy up all the shelves and just move around with all these people. That was a different kind of sensory input. So there were values that I took from that place too, and I've carried them with me. And I think there are clues in, in even the worst kind of jobs about what you do or don't need in your workplace. Um, my sense of, the reason I mention my sense of humour is because it's always been a crucial pillar in my writing, in my illustration, in my artwork, in the way I see the world, and therefore the way I get inspired and my motivation as a whole. It's massive to me. I'm the kind of person who will remember word for word something someone said very flippantly, very fleetingly, 20 years ago, and I can't remember what my wife has asked me to buy from Tesco's on the way home 10 minutes ago. That's the difference for me. That's what humour does, and that's why it's so important in my work. So that's something I look for in workplaces, you know? 
the reason I kind of didn't like those previous jobs that I mentioned is that there wasn't so much scope for that. You were just kind of left to do these mundane tasks and they just didn't have that kind of crackle and static that I look for in a place. Or, again, what some other people like you guys listening might not like. You might not want any of that. You might want, you can, you're probably vomiting thinking at the idea of strangers coming and trying to have a joke with you. But, you know, again, horses for courses, but things to consider. Um, what about tension and pressure? How does that work? And I know, again, it's not a physical thing, but you can find it in certain workplaces. So, Olivia Kugler, who was my um, prestigious guest on the two part 100th episode of this podcast, he's a reportage artist from Germany. And Olivier tells us a great story about um, being sent on an assignment. For, for Reportagen magazine, I believe in Austria. Was it Swiss? Sorry, maybe my mistake. I think it's a Swiss magazine. Um, with a journalist to capture the story of a, maf- a former mafioso boss who had a contract on his head. Uh, he was in a witness protection scheme. And Olivia tells his story about how, while he was doing his drawings of this ex-mafioso boss and his family and capturing this, these crazy stories about why he grasped the other mafiosos in he had to keep away from the door because a bullet might come through that door at any given time (laughs) now that's pressure in a workplace but Olivia also talked about how when back in his studio like the rest of us he tends to procrastinate and waste time going on social media and I loved that I loved that in this pressure cooker near-death experience workplace Olivier finds a real flow and working there and then and the intensity of working on location and he's got loads more stories to that effect but I just found that really inspirational much in the way that Chuck Palahniuk author of Fight Club likes to work in hospital emergency waiting rooms in in America and in airports and in these kind of environments where people are not dominated by one form of media like a TV or a radio or on their phones too much because he observes the body language and the behaviour and he likes the, the crackle in the air and it, it fits the style of writing and the pacing and what he needs to do. And the way that he put it, if I want people to read my books on planes and in busy environments, why would I not write them in those places to capture that energy and the pace, you know? And I just thought that was fantastic. Um, I used to take my portfolio all the time into design studios in London and in Manchester and all over the place up in uh, Glasgow sometimes, and into magazine and newspaper offices. And often I would come away yearning to be in such a workspace. I used to think it was awesome, you know, the way The Guardian worked, the way that everyone was buzzing about on assignments and everything. And I used to think, yeah, I love that. Wish I could just have a little desk in the corner. Um, I felt the same way in the Big Issues offices when I first met former art director Sam Price, who's a designer now. And... Jim Ladbury was also working there and I became friends with Sam and Jim and they invited me in to do a commission once when I was in London so I also did this at the Guardian I became I have a habit of becoming friends with art directors just because I'm passionate about what I do so you know I like to check in with them and they'll say come in for coffee and you know that ends up becoming a pint after work and before you know it you've got this new mate which I love about our industry by the way so I remember Sam and Jim saying, oh, if you're in town, we'll go for a pint. Um, we've actually got a little job for you. Like, you know, if you, have you got your kit? And I, you know, being the nerd that I was back in those days, I'd, I'd taken my scanner and everything to London just in case because I was desperate for anything I could get my hands on in those early days. And 
I remember Sam and Jim saying, if you want to come by the offices, do it. So I thought, awesome, yeah, I'll get to put it into practice. And it was quite tricky. It, you know, it's not what I expected. There were, there were people from the editorial team coming in and demanding all kinds of things from Sam and Jim. And while we sort of had a bit of a laugh while we were chatting, I also had under, underestimated the, the effect of somebody looking over my shoulder. Not that they were checking in on what I was doing, but just my awareness of that live project being up on screen. I didn't have the kind of the same relaxed nature about just working the job as I went along. I was always aware that my screen was there and the person that's commissioned me to do this work could turn around and see it at any given time. I didn't get on with that. So that gave me food for thought as well. So I didn't really like that level of shared environment. Not when my clients were in there, you know. Uh, and it was the same at The Guardian. It was Gina Cross who was art directing the sport at the time and she got me in to do a sports commission. And it was the same thing. I think it was a different trip, but it was the same thing. I was in town, I had my scanner, they said, do you want to do this job? I wasn't going to turn it down. So I said, yep, yeah, if I can come and sit in the corner of your office, it's on. As I was in a shared hostel at the time in London. That's all I could afford for accommodation. So um, that was tricky. I mean, I could, I did actually do that later on in New Zealand, work from the bunks in hostels, but that's another story. So Gina invited me in and you know I got my security pass and everything else and I felt really, really cool saying, yeah, 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 I'm just off to do some illustration work at The Guardian today. Fuck you. <laughs> That's how I felt. But I um, I got in there and it was the same thing. It's like, oh my God, there's like journalists running about all over the show. There's other art directors dropping in to say hello. And I'm there with this half-formed job up on the screen. So it's interesting how you perceive, you know, something you think you want and what it turns out to be. Um, I also remember meeting a, a guy who ran a company in Manchester at a networking event and we were both quite drunk. And he said... That he had loads of spare desks in his room and if I wanted to come in and work on them anytime I could do it and we ended up striking a deal where I had a bit of a permanent space in the corner in return for the occasional bit of illustration and what happened was there wasn't too much that they could get me to work on for that end of the deal so I ended up feeling like I'm just a stranger who's turning up every day and bringing my backpack in and setting up on a desk and all the staff are like who's this joker at the back it's like <laughs> you know so again some things just don't work uh, but when I began doing this show, this podcast, I realised that the intensity of an interview on location sent me away crazily inspired. I mean, uncontainable, full of ideas and usually unable to sleep that night. So that became a big part of the reason that I've kept doing this show for six years and counting because this is my ticket to going in to workplaces where there are awesome people and new surroundings that inspire me. Now, it doesn't mean that I, I have to want every one of those places for my own workspace, but it means that being in that environment and working on this podcast is a workplace. It's a temporary, it's like a disposable workplace almost, like when you get a little pat of butter on an airplane flight. It's that version of a workplace. And I loved that. I loved going in, getting a coffee, small talk, looking around, saying hello to the other designers, seeing what was going on, getting the rush of it all doing the interview and then doing one and I loved that and I would get home and just I wouldn't be able to sleep that night <laughs> you know I'm not joking either I would be so wired and so inspired from doing that that you know it was awesome and I've kept doing it ever since and I consider that a part of my workspace now you know Megabus I did a job on a Megabus once this was for Arsenal Football Club I did an editorial commission 
quick turnaround once again because I had to that's when the deadline was that's where I was at the time I was going out with my now wife in London when I lived in Manchester and to make that financially viable I used to get five-hour megabuses down from Manchester I felt sick on it there were random people on it making a lot of noise in the toilet doing horrible things and yet I managed to get my scanner out and all my pads and my pens and knock out an entire editorial commission from start to finish and it looked just as good as when I was in my studio so again sometimes the optimum space for creativity can be anywhere that necessity comes into play so that's another thing to consider um, live work I went through a phase of doing a lot of live work I've actually got a couple of gigs booked in as we speak but I don't do too many of them now because of the kids and because of the logistics of it and the logistics wasn't something I loved um, it's not something I love now but if the job's a good one I'll do it and I've had hit and miss experiences there so um, <laughs> I've got some stories based around this so I do all kinds of different live projects when they're the right ones I did this thing called Deck Fool so the music at the top of this show is uh, created by Dirty Freud who's my very very close friend he's a wonderful musician and when we both started out we thought it might be cool to go and do this thing called Deck Fool which we called and it was our live performance thing so Danny would turn up with his decks we'd get booked at bars and he would perform and I would do live art while he was performing and we did it a few times and it was a bit of a shambles I'm not um, I'm not a performer anyone who's seen me dance will know that I dance like a 1980s action figure you, if, you, if, if you're lucky you might get like a feature arm that moves up and down everything else moves as one solid unit I've got no rhythm whatsoever. So you can imagine me kind of stumbling around and tricking, tripping over drunk punters and slipping on beer and stuff while I'm trying to paint. And Danny's there, this awesome, cool musician, and I just look like a dickhead. And um, and I just didn't like it. I didn't like that you've got, you know, drunken people. you got managers who didn't quite get what they'd booked and they'd come over and, and sometimes they'd want to pay cash in hand and then they didn't have the money and all that stuff. That didn't work for me. Um... I did a job for Reebok and we performed, I say performed, this was less of a performance and it was more just a bunch of artists drawing live at a Kendrick Lamar gig. So it was a gig um, at the old Granada Studios where Coronation Street used to be filmed in Manchester, which is an awesome venue. And they had an exclusive gig for about 100 people, Kendrick Lamar, launched, it was the 30th anniversary of the Reebok Classic shoe. And I'll never forget they had this beautiful pristine white stage and they unveiled it to Kendrick and his entourage and when Kendrick and his entourage walked in there's six foot two of me bent over topless mopping up a broken Posca pen and the entirety of its inky contents off the floor black ink black permanent ink and the reason I had my top off was because I panicked didn't have any cloths so I whipped my t-shirt off and just mopped the ink up because I'm just there going, oh my God, here's this A-list hip-hop artist about to come in with his like 12-person entourage, and here's Nobed bent over, mopping up ink. Um, the gig went otherwise, it otherwise went really well. The piece I created, I was really happy with. The client loved it. But, you know, there's pressure. There's chance. There's a lot of chance. I guess that's my point here. There's a lot of things that can go wrong in that kind of workplace. So is that for you? Is the chance worth it? For me, I'm going to say yeah, because I value, above all else, a story, 
a particularly a funny story and that's what that was even though it was horrible at the time and really embarrassing and I don't get embarrassed easily um, it just I like it I love it I love the kind of gamble of these like this live work and I guess because I've been doing what I do for long enough now that I know I'm you know 99% sure to get the job right with the right amount of planning so that's fine with the rest of it I kind of like the unpredictability but if that's not for you then maybe live work is absolutely the last thing you should be doing and again they're all workplaces uh, I did it in Minsk at the British Embassies Festival again I loved that meeting all these people from Belarus and talking about a different culture to mine Japan Hong Kong Beijing I did a residency in Beijing I did a live performance thing at an event in Hong Kong um, Japan was a book tour and I did a live drawing session in Osaka as part of the like, performance for that and that was just fantastic talking to people learning about their cultures and being thrust into these random environments like in Japan when I was in a basement of a bookstore with all these really quite lovely quiet gentle freelancers in Japan who were coming over and asking lots of deep questions and again, I loved that drawing while I was answering the questions. I found that I was just really, really inspired and I loved it. Same in Beijing. All these people coming in the shop asking me to draw on their expensive clothes. And it's like, oh my God, if I'd get this wrong. I had a, she was a, an Olympic, Olympian. She was an Olympic swimmer. Swimmer? I got that right? No, it was, no, she was a gymnast. One of um, China's like Olympic gymnasts came in with a sports bra she bought from Victoria's Secret and I had to draw on the bra never thought I'd say that <laughs> but again I loved it and I thrive in that kind of danger environment when it comes to work I'm hardly going to be Jack Bauer as an illustrator running around in that kind of danger so it's like you take what you can get <laughs> well there you go um, what's your job I know a lot of my listeners work in agencies or um, are freelancers and is your job one that you can switch off from and walk away from. And the reason I ask is because I'm also a writer, um, I find that some places, while not a workplace, breathe new life into the time that I spend in my actual workspace. So, like I mentioned earlier, I'm not just going to spend all my hours in that studio because I've now got this nice space. For that to be really alive, I have to almost bring the spirit of somewhere else into it. So I love like football stadiums, and I love gigs, and I love... Um, design events and I love cafes so the mix-up of that stuff like I almost have to go and borrow some spirit from somewhere else and bring it back to my workspace you know because then I'll come in on fire and I'll come in and I'll work well whereas if I just you know trundle in in the morning and half asleep from a bad night's sleep from my twins I can be it doesn't matter what I'm in I could be in you know the best workplace in the world and I'll just be sat there struggling procrastinating messing around maybe on social media um so it could still be a write-off i think you have to consider external settings a part of uh, your workplace especially if it's a job that you're always observing and taking inspiration from you know again like all the things i'm talking about here there's no right answer there's no right or wrong but i just think it's worth considering the balance of the places that you're going to split your time too much or too little of any one thing can be a bad thing right ultimately i think it's just really good to be honest with yourself about your own place of work um, maybe you've got a little control over your surroundings that's another thing to think about if it's not working and you can't change it can it be tweaked will an employer listen if you tell them that like you know the setup in the office studio is harming your creativity because I don't imagine too many people do that 
Maybe if it's a kind of, you know, a design space and you're in a place and it's not work, your desk area is not working for you. Have you even asked like your, whatever your art director, whoever the person is above you, can you change that up to suit you better? Is there a way you can do that? Bring in your own bookcase, that kind of thing. Because I don't imagine that's something that goes on too much. I'm only guessing here. But maybe there's more scope for customising an existing space if it can't be changed. Um, I don't know. I'm just kind of off the top of my head stuff now. But if your employer doesn't care and they just want you to stop moaning and get on with it, then I suppose that gets more into the category of is the role, is the role right for you? Because you can't work productively under that kind of circumstance and setting forever, can you? It's going to tire and it's going to piss you off at some point. Um, if you're fatigued emotionally, mentally, physically by spending too much time on location, for example, if you're somebody who works, maybe you're a photographer or maybe you're a set designer who has to go and work on film sets, or maybe you're at home too long. You know, maybe you love working at home, but if you do it too long, with no dividing line between relaxing time and work time, that's going to get destructive and confusing, is it not? Maybe maybe the, the two things are going to poison one another. I've certainly found that in the past when I've spent too long working from home. Um, is the ideal the right thing for you? It sounds like a silly question, but I used to think of... Um, when I started writing, I used to have these wild fantasies of, you know writers from the 60s retreating to some idyllic location by the sea or somewhere sunny or you know on a snowy mountain but in fact I wrote a large portion of my second and third books Isolation Watch and Your Mum on the toilet and on the dog walk because new parenthood meant that I was the it was the only place I could do that so again this goes back to, you know to necessity and necessity really does drive some interesting results from places that you wouldn't ever consider it I mean, come on, you know, I'm not single me without a family or screaming kids. He's not going to go, do you know what? I'm going to go sit on a toilet to work today. It doesn't happen, does it? But that was the only place I could work. That was a bit of a sanctuary where I found some quiet time. And actually, much like the pressure of my editorial illustration helping me to hone my style, that helped me to strip it back to what I've built my name on. And it's the same with the writing. Five to ten minute bursts of productivity without any procrastination or room for procrastination on the toilet. That taught me how to say more with less words and refine this sparse, punchy style of storytelling. And I'm ever thankful for that now because without necessity, you, I, that wouldn't have happened. So with more time on my hands, I just wouldn't have done that, you know? Anyway, these are not questions to be answered. Um, they're just things to pay attention to. I hope this has been of some use in terms of finding your creative flow in the, in the right workspace. Um, I'll send some pictures onto social media of the studio when I'm in there and when I'm set up. Um, and I hope you've enjoyed this. Thank you for listening. Uh, I think these are things that seem obvious, but once recognised and actioned are often overlooked. So dig in, enjoy. Um, remember, there's a deal on Champagne and Wax Crayons, my first book at the minute. I'm pushing that at the moment. $7.99 down from $12.99. Um, hit me up on the social. I really do want to hear from you guys on this one. Send us some pictures of the workspace. Tell me some stories at Ben Talent or at Ben Talent Pod. Um, got some awesome guests coming up on some feature-length episodes soon. Thank you to the sponsors, illustrationx.com. Nice one, guys. Have an awesome week. Stay well and be creative.